0: Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the freedom trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 279, Granite, Glass, and the Construction of King's Chapel. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm dusting off an idea that's been on my list of potential podcast topics for over four years. It's a story that ties one of modern Boston's iconic Freedom Trail sites to the earliest days of English settlement in the Shawmut Peninsula. It's a story that ties the first Puritan to die in Boston to the hated royal governor Edmund Andros, and it ties some of the earliest non-English immigrants in Boston to Ben Franklin and Abigail Adams through the invention of two local industries. King's Chapel is beloved in Boston today but it was seen as an unwelcome invader when it was first proposed in 1686. In this week's show, we'll look at how Boston found room for an unwanted church, how the church was reinvented at least three times, and how it launched local glassmaking and founded the granite industry in Quincy. We'll also see where you can find the last traces of the original wooden king's chapel hiding inside the walls of a more modern church, but not here in Boston. But before we talk about building King's Chapel, I just want to pause and say a big thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. By committing to support the show with $2, $5, or even $20 each month, this core group of listener supporters takes care of the cost of making a podcast. And there definitely are costs. Podcasting is a cheaper medium to break into than many are. I don't need fancy cameras or expensive video editing software. I don't need a publisher's presses or the broadcast tower from a radio or TV station. All I really needed to get started back in October 2016 was a cheap USB microphone and the headphones that I already had lying around the house. However, the tab does add up over time. After recording the first episode, I had to find a place to put it, which means paying for podcast media hosting. Not everyone who starts a podcast creates a website for it, but it was important to me that we have an easy place to send listeners so they can see historic maps and documents and all the other sources that I turn up when I make a show. So that means buying a domain name and figuring out a web host. After the site had been online for a couple of years, we got hit by a hacker who injected malicious code into the site, so that also meant adding enhanced security for the website. Eventually, we figured out that the deaf and hearing impaired might want to enjoy the show too, so we started adding automated transcription to each episode, which, of course, isn't perfect, but it's better than nothing. Over the years, I think the research I do for each episode has gotten much better, but that also means paying for access to research databases. I've tried conducting more interview episodes, and that adds its own set of costs as well. All those expenses do eventually add up, and that's why I'm so grateful to the sponsors who are willing to pay for a free podcast. Their support covers my monthly expenses and hopefully offsets unexpected costs like lawsuits when those crop up. To all our sponsors, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Depending on how you count them, there have been about five different incarnations of Boston's King's Chapel, but only three of those have been in Boston. Boston. Each version was born in controversy, going right back to the founding of the church in 1686. The problem, right from the very beginning, is where they chose to put it. The book, A Chronological History of New England, records a death in Boston just a few months after the town was founded in 1630. September 30th, Thursday. About two in the morning, Mr. Isaac Johnson dies. He was a holy man and wise, and died in sweet peace, leaving part of his substance to the colony. Our story begins not so much with Isaac Johnson's death, but with what came next. The chronology continues by recounting a conversation between the chronicler, Thomas Prince, and Puritan minister Samuel Sewell. The late Chief Justice Samuel Sewell informed me that this Mr. Johnson was the principal cause of settling the town of Boston, and so of its becoming the metropolis, and had removed hither. Had chosen for his lot the great square lying between Cornhill on the southeast, Tremont Street in the northwest, Queen Street on the northeast, and School Street on the southwest, and on his deathbed desiring to be buried at the upper end of his lot, in faith of his rising in it. He was accordingly buried there, which gave occasion for the first burying place of this town to be laid out round about his grave. Today, of course, we refer to Johnson's former backyard along Tremont Street as King's Chapel Burying Ground, but it didn't yet have that name. At the time, it was just the burying ground in Boston, which belonged to no church. In the Puritan tradition, cemeteries belonged to the community. In this case, it just so happened that that community was a Puritan theocracy. All that would change after the English Restoration. On December 20th, 1686, the new royally appointed governor of Massachusetts and all of New England arrived in Boston. Sir Edmund Andros was appointed by James II and given control of the newly created Dominion of New England which included Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and eventually even New York and the Jerseys. He was instantly unpopular with his Puritan neighbors, getting off on the wrong foot by demanding a public celebration of Christmas, which at that point had been banned in Boston for 22 years. Andros was not only a member of the Church of England, an Anglican, but a flamboyant one. After his public Christmas celebration, he wanted a venue to hold regular Anglican worship services. One by one, he went to the pastors of each of Boston's Puritan churches and asked if they would allow him to hold his services there. One by one, they told him no. After being denied, he used his royal authority to demand the key to the third church, which belonged to the congregation that's today's Old South Church. In their building known as the Cedar Meeting House, a small Anglican congregation met for the next two years, while Andros looked for land where he could build an Anglican church. When nobody in Boston would sell him land that they knew would be used for a dissenting church, Andros seized part of the town's burying ground. In a spiteful move, he decided that if the Puritans wouldn't sell him land for a church, he'd simply build it on the graves of their fathers. A small wooden chapel was erected, and the congregation moved into it in 1689. The congregation started out small and grew slowly at first, until it got a sudden influx of powerful new members about 20 years later. In the records of the town of Boston, there's a petition that was put up for a vote at the town meeting in 1710. Members of the King's Chapel congregation were asking the town, which, again, owned the old burying ground upon which the chapel was built, to move some graves and cede a strip of land to the church. A motion or request in writing being presented and distinctly read at this meeting, and is as followeth. The request of the Honorable Colonel Francis Nicholson, together with the ministers, church wardens, and others of the Church of England in Boston, showeth that the church being too small to accommodate the congregation and strangers that daily increase, and are desirous to enlarge the same, with the approbation of the selectmen and inhabitants, but one in ground on the north side and east end, requests that they may have a grant of 15 foot wide on the north side, and 74 foot in length, and 10 foot on the east end of the church in length, which is included in the said 74 foot reserving the same liberty to all persons who have had any friends buried in said ground, which they enjoyed heretofore. Which request being granted shall be ever acknowledged, etc. Voted, a grant to the said gentleman of the above said request. Now that request was probably approved because that year the town of Boston, which had always had a significant Puritan majority, suddenly swelled with an influx of Anglican visitors. The Colonel Nicholson mentioned above was one of the commanders of what was at the time the largest military force ever assembled under the English flag in North America. About 1,500 provincial troops and British regulars were camped out on Noddles Island in Boston Harbor under Admiral Hovinton Walker and General John Hill. Later that year, they would launch what turned out to be a disastrous attempt at laying siege to Quebec. But for now, they brought a sudden influx of money and men who were affiliated with the Anglican Church and worshipped at King's Chapel. The diary of Puritan minister and one-time witch trial judge Samuel Sewell gives a sense of how the meeting went. Monday, August 14th, at a town meeting... Warned for that purpose, 15 feet of the old burying place northward and 10 feet eastward are granted to enlarge the church. Samuel Lind was chosen moderator, Colonel Nicholson made a speech before, and came in afterward and gave the town thanks for their vote. Mr. Prout, the town clerk, made some opposition because the graves of his ancestor would be thereby hidden. Not much is known about the process of construction used in this second version of King's Chapel. Only the related disasters remain in the historical record. While construction was still underway on October 2nd, 1711, the ship tavern on Orange Street, between King's Chapel and the townhouse, or today's old state house, caught on fire. By the time it was extinguished, 110 houses had been destroyed in the area surrounding Orange Street, which we now know as Washington Street. First Church, the home of John Winthrop's original congregation, had been destroyed, as was the townhouse, which was rebuilt as the old state house that we know and love today. Though the flames at times moved in the direction of King's Chapel, it did escape unscathed. Later that month, however, a fatal injury is recorded at the construction site. October twenty sixth, a man falls from a scaffold at the Church of England into the street, and is stricken dead. Despite these minor setbacks, the new, expanded church was soon complete. The annals of King's Chapel record that the congregation was pleased with their new home. Great things had been done in beautifying the little wooden church without and within. It was enlarged to twice its original size, and the pillars, capitals, and cornice were painted. Places were assigned anew to the proprietors, and each person paid for the building of his own pew. And whereas the pews had been built before according to the usual fashion, with little rails or banisters running round the top, it was now voted that they should be built in one form, without banisters. The pulpit was removed from its former situation to the next pillar at the east, being near the center of the church. A clock given by the gentlemen of the British society, took the place of the great brass-mounted hourglass which used to stand by the preacher's hand, to be turned by him when its sands had run out, in admonition to him and his congregation. We can see the church as it appeared after these alterations in a small view of Boston published in 1720, in which may be deciphered the King's Chapel, a little wooden building with three windows on each side, and three at the flat back of the church. It has a tower about as high as the present one, surmounted by a tall mast, at whose top is a weathercock, and halfway up, a large gilt crown. We'll have a copy of the only known drawing of the 1710 incarnation of King's Chapel in this week's show notes. By the time three decades had passed, the expanded church building was beginning to look a little bit rough around the edges. In 1741, Governor William Shirley started a subscription fund to raise money to build a new stone church. Peter Faneuil was appointed as treasurer of the fund. Faneuil, who, as a merchant and slave trader, had turned a generous inheritance into one of the largest fortunes in America, became distracted. In 1740, he convinced the town of Boston to construct a new market building at his expense, and the construction of Faneuil Hall coincided with the launch of the subscription campaign. Just a few months after the market was completed in 1741, Peter Faneuil died. Shirley also seems to have lost interest, and the project was put back on the back burner again. In 1747, the subscription campaign was reopened, and the initial appeal said, We the subscribers, upon a representation that the said king's chapel is now much more gone to decay, and not worth the charge of repairs, out of regard to the honor of God and the more decent provision for his public worship, and for confirming and further promoting the said subscription heretofore begun, do hereby severally promise and oblige ourselves to pay towards rebuilding the said chapel the several sums annexed to our respective names. And we do hereby also further invite all well-disposed charitable persons to whom this subscription of ours shall be made known to join with us in the good work above mentioned. Governor Shirley, Reverend Kaner, and the lay leadership of the church embarked on a letter-writing campaign they send appeals to bishops, lords, and other potential benefactors on both sides of the Atlantic. Sir, as the ruinous condition of King's Chapel in this town is very well known to you, who have generally contributed to the rebuilding of it, a violent storm, having lately carried off a large part of the roof, lays us under a necessity of hastening the work with all possible expedition. And another... May it please your lordship, we think it our duty to acquaint your lordship that time and other accidents, particularly a late remarkable storm, have so much impaired King's Chapel in Boston that it has become necessary to rebuild it. If the great many affairs in which you are engaged give you leisure to attend to the application of a people at this distance, we humbly beg leave to lay before you the ruinous condition of King's Chapel in this town, which having suffered very much from a late violent storm, has now become necessary to be rebuilt. And finally, Sir, King's Chapel in Boston, the first church ever built in this part of the world, is now, through length of time and sundry accidents, brought to such a ruinous condition as to occasion its being speedily pulled down. The campaign to build a new stone building for King's Chapel on top of what remained of Boston's first congregational burying ground led to further controversy. The Anglicans of King's Chapel and the Congregationalist majority of the town had a long and contentious debate over whether King's Chapel should be expanded when it was rebuilt. If it was expanded, even more graves of even more ancient Puritan ancestors would have to be disturbed and relocated. Eventually, leaders believed that they had reached a compromise. The Congregationalists would agree to the request to cede more land from the burying ground. In return, the Anglicans would bear the cost of relocating any graves that were disturbed, and they would acquire a nearby parcel of land where a school that had to be displaced could be moved. The following petition was presented at a Boston town meeting, laying out the compromise to the freeholders and other inhabitants of the town of Boston, and general town meeting assembled, April 4th, 1748. The petition of the minister, wardens, and vestry of King's Chapel in Boston, and behalf of themselves and the congregation that usually attend the public worship of God there, showeth that said chapel, which has been constantly improved for the public worship of God for about sixty years past, is in many parts of it rotten and greatly decayed, and almost rendered unfit for that service any longer. And said congregation, out of regard to the honor of God, and for their own edification, being very desirous that the public worship of God should still be supported and carried on in said place, have determined to rebuild said church, and make it somewhat larger, more commodious, and regular than it is now. But apprehend they shall be greatly straitened for one of ground at the east end of the said church to effect the same. Your petitioners therefore pray the town will be pleased to grant to the said church thirty-four feet eastward for the body of the said chapel, and ten feet for a chancel, in order to enlarge the same into a regular and commodious building. And whereas the town has a schoolhouse upon part of the land which your petitioners request, it is therefore humbly proposed, in consideration of the grant hereby requested, that the petitioners do purchase and make over to the town a piece of ground at the upper end of the lane or passage running the present schoolhouse, and erect thereon a new schoolhouse of like dimensions with the present. The said petitioners not to dig or open any ground which the additional building shall cover, excepting to lay the foundation, nor, at any time, to exclude those who have vaults or tombs within the requested limits from the liberty of a free access to them. Two weeks later, on April 18th, the measure passed in a close vote that was not without some funny business. And thereupon the inhabitants were directed to bring in their votes in writing. And such of them as were for accepting of the said draft of a vote as prepared by the committee, and passing the same as the vote of the town in answer to the said petition, were desired to write yea, and such as were not for accepting it to write nay, The inhabitants proceeded to bring in their votes, and when the selectmen were receiving them at the door of the hall, they observed one of the inhabitants, John Pigeon, to put in about a dozen with the word yea wrote on all of them. And being charged with so doing, he acknowledged it, and was thereupon ordered by the moderator to pay a fine of five pounds for putting in more than one vote, according to the law. And the moderator thereupon declared to the inhabitants that they must withdraw and bring in their votes again, in manner as before directed, and the inhabitants accordingly withdrew, and the votes being brought in and sorted, it appeared that there was 402 votes, and that there was 205 yeas and 197 nays, whereupon it was declared by the moderator that the said form of a vote was accepted and passed by the town accordingly. An eight-vote margin in an election with known voter fraud is mighty tight. It took a year to get permission to move the bodies of those interred in the newly transferred piece of land, and to build the schoolhouse to the town's demanding and ever-changing standards. Finally, in April 1749, the church committee was ready to begin purchasing construction materials. Before you can buy materials, however, you need a plan, so Reverend Caner wrote to Peter Harrison of Newport. Boston. 5th of April 1749. Mr. Peter Harrison, Sir, The committee appointed to have the care of rebuilding King's Chapel in this town, as they design with all convenient expedition to proceed in the business committed to their trust, have desired me to acquaint you that they should esteem it a favor if you would oblige them with a draft of a handsome church agreeable to the limits hereinafter assigned. The length of the church from west to east, including the steeple, is to be 120 feet besides which there will be 10 feet allowed for a chancel. The breadth is to be 65 feet 8 inches. The ground has a declivity of about 5 feet from west to east. It is bounded with a fair street on the west end and another on the south side. The north side has a large open space or burying ground. The east end is bounded by private property at about 12 feet distance. As the chief beauty and strength of a building depends upon a due proportion of the several members to each other, the gentlemen of the committee are encouraged to make this application to you, whom they have often heard mentioned with advantage for a particular judgment and taste in things of this kind, and for the knowledge you have acquired by traveling and observation. We do not require any great expense of ornament, but chiefly aim at symmetry and proportion, which we entirely submit to your judgment. The building is to be of rough stone, and since the charge will greatly increase by carrying the walls very high, if it does not interfere with your judgment, we should perhaps be pleased with one tier of windows only. This indeed will be inconvenient for the galleries, and therefore, if it be not too much trouble, the gentlemen would be glad to have a prospect of a side of each sort, one with a single tier of windows and the other with two. The steeple and spire for bigness, height, and ornament is left with you to determine. A draft of which, together with a ground plaid, is what is desired, and would extremely oblige the gentlemen of the committee, and be esteemed a very great favor by, sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, H. Kainer. Now, depending on where you read about him, you may hear Peter Harrison described as America's greatest architect, or... Maybe America's first architect, or as the first professionally trained architect working in North America. He was born in England in 1716, and placed in an apprenticeship with a master architect when he was just 12 years old. His first commission was a 600-foot-long country home for the Marquess of Rockingham. But as he completed his apprenticeship, most of the work he got was for churches and other public buildings, which it was customary not to charge for. Realizing at a young age that his best bet to earn a living at his chosen trade was to get out of England, he had a sea captain brother teach him how to be the master of a ship. His first major cruise took him to the east coast of North America in 1738, and within a few short months he had designed mansions, public markets, churches, a synagogue, and a courthouse in the West Indies, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Closer to home, he discovered upon arriving in Boston that the lovely Christ Church had no bell tower, because the original architect's design couldn't be built within the church's budget. Harrison quickly sketched out a new design that the church we know as Old North could afford, and 37 years later, two lanterns would be famously hung from a window that Harrison designed to warn of the British advance on Concord. On his next trip to North America, Harrison was captured by the French and imprisoned for a time at the Fortress Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island. While there, he found and copied a complete architectural blueprint of the ford, sewed his copy into the lining of his coat, and after he was released, he showed it to Massachusetts Governor William Shirley. This had the dual effect of convincing Shirley that a force of Massachusetts provincials could take over the ford which people had previously believed to be impregnable, and convincing Shirley that Harrison should design a mansion for him. Massachusetts captured Lewisburg in the summer of 1745, and work began on the Roxbury Mansion that we now call the Shirley Eustace House in 1747. Harrison also designed the official governor's mansion near downtown Crossing that was called the Province House, a building for Harvard, and later both a courthouse and prison for Boston. As work got going on the new chapel in Boston in 1749, Shirley was one of the largest donors to the construction effort, and Harrison had his hands full with commissions from throughout the colonies. In June of 1749, the church committee entered into a contract with Mr. George Tilly to land stone, sand, lime, and other building materials at his wharf on the Boston waterfront. Tilly would then be responsible for carting materials to the building site. Foundation stones were arranged from Roxbury. Granite for the walls was going to be sourced from the part of Braintree that we now know as Quincy. A Mr. Hayward of Braintree agreed to deliver a shipload of 24 tons of granite from the South Common, and a Mr. Hunt signed on to bring 22 tons from the North Common. Sources call King's Chapel the first cut granite building in the U.S., but it may be more accurate to say that it's the earliest surviving example. Thomas Hancock's Beacon Hill mansion that was later inherited by his famous nephew John was built using the same materials and techniques, and it was completed about a decade before the rebuild of King's Chapel. The American granite industry didn't exist yet in 1749. In fact, the techniques that would later be used in the famous Quincy quarries hadn't been developed yet at the time. The use of granite was limited to boulders and outcrops that could be located at ground level, and techniques for working them were primitive. In his History of the Granite Industry in New England, Arthur Wellington Braley quotes an 1859 paper presented at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences by Mass Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw. King's Chapel was built of coarse boulders, dug out of the ground, and then split and hammered. The boulders were split up for this building, It said, by heating the stone, by building a fire upon it, and then splitting it by letting heavy iron balls fall upon it. Of course, granite obtained in this way was very expensive, and the process could be best applied only to boulders having a free side. At some time between the end of the first quarter and the middle of the 18th century, that is now a little more than 100 years ago, The practice of stone hewing and hammering for the working of granite was first introduced into Massachusetts by German emigrants. This class of German artisans first introduced into this country the practice of preparing hewn or hammered stone, wrought to a plain surface, sufficiently straight and smooth to make a regular wall. When this work was finished, it was the wonder of the country round. People coming from a distance made it an object to see and admire this great structure. The wonder was that stone enough could be found in the vicinity of Boston fit for the hammer to construct an entire building. But it seemed to be universally concluded that enough more like it could not be found to build another such building. In his Three Episodes of Massachusetts History, The Settlement of Boston, Volume 2, historian and John Adams' grandson, Charles Francis Adams, notes the alarm with which Braintree viewed the depletion of their granite supply. Hayward and Hunt had been contracted to bring stone from the town common, and the town was quick to put a stop to the practice. At that time, they had so little conception of the extent of this granite formation that in Braintree much alarm was felt, lest the use of the stone for buildings in other towns would exhaust the supply. For years, the subject was discussed at each town meeting, and new measures of ever-increasing stringency, protective measures were devised to avert the threatened dearth. Accordingly, in 1753, immediately after King's Chapel was finished, a vote was passed forbidding the further removal of boulders from the commons until otherwise ordered. For if the drain went on unchecked, there would not be enough stone in braintree for the town's own use. Little did anyone know that less than a century later, the granite formation underlying what was once Braintree's North Common would be home to some 54 quarries, producing the world's most sought-after cut granite. Now, with funding more or less sorted out, suppliers for the key building materials under contract, and delivery secured, it was time to begin construction. The annals of the church reveal that the decision was made in the summer of 1749. Boston, July 26, 1749. It is this day agreed between us, the subscribers, and the Committee for Rebuilding King's Chapel to lay the foundation of the said chapel to the height of the first floor in stone and mortar of the thickness of four feet. All above ground to be square-jointed without pinners, the faces hammered square, and to be performed in every respect in a workmanlike manner. Laborers were now employed to open a trench for the foundation with all possible dispatch, which, being soon accomplished to the depth of between seven and eight feet, the committee directed that the first stone for the foundation should be laid on the 11th of August. The trench for the new foundation was dug around the footprint of the original wooden building. For over three years, the congregation would continue attending services in the dilapidated original structure, though the siding was slowly rotting and the roof was largely gone. As a fundraising plea to His Majesty King George II said, As it is built of wood and is more than sixty years old, and has been greatly weakened by a late remarkable storm, it has become dangerous to attend divine service in it when the winds are high as, by its situation, it is pretty much exposed. Nevertheless, the old building was still used for holy service, except, I guess, when it was windy until the last possible minute. In the meantime, the foundation was laid, and new stone walls would slowly rise around the existing wooden structure. The first step, after excavation was complete, was a ceremonial laying of the cornerstone by the governor himself. On Friday, the 11th of August, Mr. Caner, Mr. Brockwell, the treasurer and committee, together with the wardens, vestry, and other principal gentlemen of the church, waited on His Excellency William Shirley Esquire from the province house to the ground laid out for the church amidst a large concourse of spectators, where a stone was prepared. When the Masons had placed the stone at the northeast corner of the trench, His Excellency, according to custom, settled it with a stroke or two of a Mason's hammer, and after giving the workman about twenty pounds to drink his health, went into the old church, as did also most of those who were present, where, after prayers, a sermon was preached with a view to the occasion by Reverend Mr. Caner. Perhaps hinting that construction practices were somewhat different in the 1740s than they are now, the committee was contracting for building materials in June, ground was broken in July, and the cornerstone was ceremonial laid on August 11th. And only after all that was complete were the blueprints delivered. The blueprints and elevation drawings arrived on September 15th, along with a note from architect Peter Harrison apologizing for the delay and chalking it up to an unexpected influx in business. The annals of King's Chapel note that by that time, the work of the foundation was now considerably advanced. But since the committee had given him their required dimensions, the church he had designed would fit neatly on the foundation that was already mostly built. Late that fall, work on the church ceased for the season, with the assumption that it would resume as soon as the spring had warmed enough for the ground to thaw. However, the annals reveal that some things never change. From the spring thaw to June 1750, no measurable progress was made, because the church committee was in a dispute with their contractors. By July, the Masons were back at work on the foundation, but they were still arguing over rates and deadlines until the end of the month, eventually agreeing to complete the below-ground foundation by that November. Work on the walls above ground level continued in the spring of 1751, though progress was slow, as the church was always scrambling to find, as one letter to a potential benefactor said, money, glass, nails, lead, or other materials requisite in such a building. After Reverend Henry Caner's wife Anne died in March 1752, his record-keeping on the church project became less meticulous. Nevertheless, the project continued unabated. Within a year, most of the stonework was in place, and the roof was starting to take shape. Church records from March of 1753 indicate that the congregation was asking around town for a place to hold their services, at such a time as the old wooden chapel would have to be pulled down. A letter to the lay leaders of Trinity Church on March 19th said, The proprietors of King's Chapel have come to a resolution to take down the chapel within a few days. The parishioners of King's Chapel would regularly meet at Trinity during the next several months, and at a few other churches for special occasions. They even borrowed Old South Church for their Christmas service, despite the historic tension between the Church of England and Boston Puritans over just this question. Finally... All that was left was to remove the old wooden church building from within the newly built stone walls, and then finish the church's interior. The exterior columns and decorations were to be made out of wood, and the interior would also be mostly finished with wood. And wood was something that New England had plenty of. Tradition says that the wooden structure of the old church was disassembled and taken out through the windows of the new church. Perhaps then it makes sense that the only material that the church committee planned to import was glass for the windows, and that it was to be installed after the old building was removed. The glass was ordered from London, and had arrived in the late fall of 1753. There was just one problem. It didn't fit the window openings. A letter from John Franklin to his famous brother Ben on November 26, 1753 notes the error and points out the potential for the Franklin family to make a tidy profit. Our furnace stands well at present, and the glassmen are fully employed in making window glass and bottles. The former, made of our own materials, is light and clear beyond our expectation, so that we expect it will be thought good enough to glaze the new church. I'm told the committee have sent for a sample of it, that they have from London, being by a mistake, cut to a wrong size. John Franklin was the majority shareholder in a glassworks in Old Braintree, and his little brother Ben had a small stake as well. A 1979 report on an archaeological dig carried out on the site of the glassworks in 1969 gives us a sense of the operation. The glass furnace was located on a marsh bordering Town River, called Shed's Neck, in 1750, 100 acres of land was leased from Colonel John Quincy to a company consisting of John Franklin, brother of Benjamin, Norton Quincy, Peter Etter, and headed by a German emigrant, Joseph Krelius, the prime mover in all subsequent operations. In 1752, the company released the land to Joseph Palmer and Richard Cranch, who began the construction of buildings which were to house such infant industries as a chocolate mill, spermaceti and glassworks, stocking weaving, salt manufacturing, and a shipyard. Colonel John Quincy was the eventual namesake of the town of Quincy, and of course he was also Abigail Adams' grandfather. Norton Adams was her uncle. And Richard Cranch would eventually become her brother-in-law, so this was a company with connections. Today, the site's just across the mouth of the Town River from Four River Naval Shipyard, and it's in a neighborhood of Quincy called Germantown. It got that name from about 300 skilled German glassworkers who were enticed to move to Massachusetts and work in the new enterprise. Unfortunately, this group of hopeful immigrants was unlucky because, as the report says, the glass factory began operations around November 27, 1752, only to be destroyed by lightning and subsequent fire on June 2, 1755, after only three years of operation. Most of this group migrated to Temple, New Hampshire to begin an unsuccessful operation there. During the glasswork's brief period of operation, it had three main products—dark green cider jugs, snuff bottles in various shades of yellow and amber, and greenish-clear window glass. All of these were handmade and hand-blown. Silica, lime, soda, and coloring agents would be carefully measured into clay melting pots or crucibles up to three feet in diameter. These were then inserted into the brick glass furnace and fired to 2300 degrees until the ingredients melted and fused to form liquid glass. One of our German glass blowers would then dip his metal blowing pipe into the molten glass and carefully wind the material around his pipe. Then, depending on the finished product, he would blow and turn the glowing glass, slowly forming a vessel. The archaeological report describes how this vessel was transformed into window glass. Germantown window glass is clear, green-white in color. It was blown into a cylinder, which was then split and flattened, opening into a sheet. Some fused sheets were found. One in particular showed five layers of glass fused together, a probable result of the fateful fire of June 1755. Since it was already November by the time the error with the London glass was detected, and the congregation was hoping to move into their new church building in the spring of 1754, there was no time to order new windows from England and wait for their manufacture and delivery. A voyage across the Atlantic could take months, and the winter was the worst and slowest time for such a crossing. The chapel building committee had little choice but to turn to Franklin's glassworks. And church records reveal that a man named Gershom Flagg had been paid for installing the new windows by February 15, 1754. The 1979 paper concludes, It would therefore appear that King's Chapel is the first known public building in America to use locally made window glass. When the new building was at least closed off to the elements, it was time for services to move back in. Representatives from King's Chapel sent a thank-you note to the minister and congregation of Trinity Church, whose building they had been most recently borrowing for their services. Sirs, having agreed to open King's Chapel on Wednesday next, and thenceforward to have divine service continued there, we thought proper to give you this early notice of our design, and especially we are desirous of expressing our thanks for indulging us in the use of your church whilst ours has been rebuilding and to assure you that we shall be ready to testify our gratitude for this favor by any services in our power, if the circumstances of your church should call for our assistance. The first service in the new church building was held on August 21, 1754. Reverend Caner preached a sermon based on a passage from Leviticus that says, Ye shall keep my Sabbaths, and reverence my sanctuary." And then, the records say, they passed the collection plate and collected 342 pounds towards the unfinished work on the building. Of course, just because the old wooden church was removed doesn't mean its story is over. The bones of the old church were still solid even after it was disassembled, and 350 miles to the northeast, a brand new English town was in need of a church the previous summer, English Protestants had founded the town of Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, as a way to assert British authority over the local Micmac Nation, and to prevent French Catholic Acadians from resettling in the area after their previous expulsion. As the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War, began, Massachusetts' provincial troops were sometimes garrisoned at Lunenburg. They were well-needed as the town was raided by French and Mi'kmaq forces nine times in the first six years of its existence. So with a town in need of an Anglican church, no sawmills yet established in Nova Scotia, deep ties between Lunenburg and Massachusetts, and the frame and trusses of an Anglican church just sitting there, only one thing made sense. The wooden church that had been constructed as King's Chapel's second building in 1710 was packed onto ships, and sailed up the coast to Nova Scotia. In Lunenburg, it was offloaded, reassembled, repaired, and it opened its doors for worship before the end of 1754. The new St. John's Anglican Church served its new congregation for almost 250 years. Until 2001, that is, when a series of Halloween pranks by teenagers got out of hand in Lunenburg. That night, 22 arson fires were reported around the town, stretching the volunteer fire department to its limit. No arrests were ever made, but newspapers at the time speculated that they might have been set by teens who were angry at police for arresting their friends after an altercation earlier in the evening. Most of them were doused quickly, but then at about 1 a.m., a call came in reporting flames at St. John's Church. Church Rector Irving Leto described the scene of the Toronto Globe and Mail in 2001. It was on the southeast corner, and at that time we thought it would be out in a few minutes. But it went on and on for a long time, he said. We were hopeful, but then we became nervous that there was more going on than this, and we saw that it was traveling under the roof, and the firefighters couldn't get at it, and it traveled the whole length of the building. Before long, the copper roof was glowing red. The roof, the bell tower, and the chime of ten bells came crashing down. Firefighters made the difficult decision to smash through the beautiful and historic stained glass windows to get inside and try to contain the blaze. It took 147 firefighters 15 hours to get the fire completely out. In the days that followed, parishioners saved what they could from the ruins, but the press initially reported that the building would be a total loss. That turned out not to be quite true. After cleanup efforts were done, about half of the original structure was still standing. The congregation made the difficult decision not to tear down what remained and build a replacement, though some people thought that a replica of the original could be made with the insurance money. Instead, they decided to keep what was left and rebuild around it, a much more costly and complicated alternative. The wooden church that had been built in Boston in 1689, expanded in 1710, replaced by a stone chapel and moved to Nova Scotia in 1754, and then burned in 2001, would have a chance at yet another rebirth. To get it done, they raised over 6.5 million Canadian dollars from around the country, and they enlisted the help of the community. A local stained glass artist volunteered to recreate the historic windows that had been broken during the fire. Helga Sattler used photographs of the original windows to painstakingly recreate them, even incorporating original glass panes and letting that had been salvaged from the ashes. Local shipwrights, many of whom were suffering during a downturn in the local shipbuilding business, turned their traditional woodworking skills to the puzzle of constructing beams, buttresses, and trusses that could support the new church, while incorporating what was left of the old building. An astronomer from Halifax was enlisted to extrapolate from a single unburned panel and calculate an exact recreation of the stars in the night sky that would have been painted on the chancel ceiling over the altar. Finally, on June 12, 2005, the reconstructed church opened its doors. During the rededication service, the same six firefighters who had saved the wooden altar on the night of the fire carried it back into the sanctuary. Today, the unrestored charring on the altar is the only visible reminder of the fire. To learn more about the many incarnations of King's Chapel, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 279. I'll have pictures of King's Chapel as it looks today, as well as the only drawing that I could find that shows how it looked in 1710 with any accuracy. I'll link to the Annals of King's Chapel, which a lot of my research is drawn from, as well as some articles about the architect, Peter Harrison. For primary sources, I'll link to letters among the Franklin family about their investment in the Quincy glassworks, and I'll supplement that with histories by John and Abigail's grandson, Charles Francis Adams, and Arthur Wellington Braley. Finally, I'll include the full 1979 report on the archaeological dig that uncovered remnants of the original glassworks along the Quincy shoreline. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and still most active on Twitter. If you're on Mastodon, you can find me as at hubhistory at better dot Boston. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.